Adam Arnold graduated from college with an architecture degree from USC, but when his post-graduation job fell through, he made a brave decision at the time and moved back to Northern California to start at Autodesk. Today, Adam's been at Autodesk nearly seven years now, and he joins us to share what exactly his job is like as a senior software engineer coming from an unconventional background. I ask Adam about how someone can get their feet wet as a beginner with Amazon Web Services or AWS, and we go behind the scenes to discuss exactly how the accidentalengineer.com is hosted on AWS and why. Baby, won't you take a Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer. Today we are joined by Adam Arnold, a longtime friend of mine since high school. (laughs) Um, Adam, do you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, Hi, Max, and thanks, and hi, audience. Um, Adam Arnold, uh, I'm a senior software engineer at Autodesk. We make software uh, for architects and engineers and, and others. And I've been in this role for about uh, five years now. So you're located in San Francisco where Autodesk is headquartered. Um, Is that right? Right. Autodesk is headquartered in the San Francisco area, technically San Rafael, but a lot of of us now are in the San Francisco office. You've got a background in architecture that I kind of wanted to cover as your background definitely fits a, a template, I guess we have for guests, which is not getting your undergraduate in computer science, um, but rather in architecture. So f- to give people an idea of the timeline through your undergraduate experience through to getting your first engineering job, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Okay, um, sure. Well, as you said, I started out school um, at um, studying a five-year architecture uh, program and uh, ended up transitioning into um, sort of a double major of engineering and architecture. And uh, I was under the impression that I was going to be uh, designing homes as an architect or a structural engineer or a little of both. That sort of uh, fell through a little bit. Uh, do you mind elaborating on that? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think your experience here might be more common with our audience than you might imagine. Okay. Um, sure. Well, uh, soon after I graduated, um, I had no trouble finding sort of unpaid jobs in the architecture field, uh, but eventually I was able to secure a high-end residential job in New York City. About one or two weeks before that was ready to begin, you know, I had housing arranged, I had a plane ticket, I had everything ready to go. Um, I was notified by uh, by the woman that had hired me that uh, she no longer needed help. Um, so at that point, I had to sort of change courses. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, have a roommate who was dabbling himself in um, software development, and uh, he showed me the ropes uh, a little bit and and gave me like a, a quick start book to, to PHP, and I started with HTML, CSS, and PHP, making some really clunky websites at first, and um, doing sort of freelance graphics work, uh, architectural graphics and model building and 3D modeling. And uh, so it sounds like between doing the freelance architectural modeling and the uh, website design that you were able to (laughs) substitute what you thought was a full-time job that you had lined up 
Is that fair to say, or or was did it kind of fall short of what you'd expected when you moved out to New York? Uh, well, it certainly wasn't glamorous, um, but it was enough to live on the beach for a couple months with with my friends in Los Angeles. So that was great. And eventually- so you moved back to LA, or or what happened? Yeah, there? I, I sort of stayed in LA after I graduated for for about six months, and. Um, this sort of uh, freelance work enabled me to do that and uh, to make some cool connections. Um, and then sort of out of the blue is when I got a call from Autodesk with a like a, a two-year-old resume from a career fair on my sophomore year. And uh, their question was, with some of the domain knowledge I had after having worked and interned in the architecture industry and being quite familiar with their software, if I wanted to come on as a tester. So um, with nothing better to do, um, I said yes and moved back up to San Francisco. So that first role with Autodesk was not engineering, is that right? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Um, It was a QA role. Uh, Basically, they had me testing uh, the help and support content for the AutoCAD product. Which is something that you got familiar familiarity with through your undergrad program yeah, or it's, it's uh, through internship type stuff. Yeah, it, a little of both. It's something that pretty much everyone in the architecture industry is familiar with and probably is, is frustrated with at times. Uh, so. so there was a lot of value in in helping improve the support content, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So. So you mentioned learning PHP. Over that summer, when the job in New York fell through, how did that come into play with your your QA job that you got with Autodesk? Sure. Um, well, I should back up a little bit and tell you that the initial reason for uh, learning how to use PHP was um, my designs for an elaborate personal website uh, at the time when I had pretty much no web skills. Uh, so that required me to pick up these things. Uh, pretty quickly. And the idea was with a good enough website, I would be able to um, secure a job. So uh, that wasn't what happened, but the skills that I learned then helped me once I got this role. So basically, uh, it turned out to be a lot of, a little bit of a a tedious job at first. Um, You know, we're testing tens of thousands of pages of help and support content, looking for broken links, looking for uh, common terminology errors um, that were evidence of uh, this sort of XML assembly process going awry. Um, so it quickly became obvious to me that I could get a lot more done and avoid a lot of the tedium if I were to automate some of it. So um, that's when I sort of revisited uh, this this coding tool that I that I had picked up uh, to help me out there. So how did Revisiting this tool with PHP and uh, sort of automating yourself uh, out of your own job—I mean, it, you didn't—you retained your job, but how did you how did you make that transition from QA to engineering formally? Oh, sure. Well, um, I guess you're you're right in saying that I sort of automated away uh, some of my own role, but what that led to is um, I had good enough people above me that they realized that um, I could be leveraged. So uh, they figured out more and more complicated tasks for me to to automate. uh, And uh, my value to them started to increase. And uh, eventually, 
I made contact with sort of other parts of, of the company uh, through this role. And with a good recommendation and, you know, having worked with people, when a role opened up on, um, on the team that I'm currently on, uh, they looked to me, even though I was junior, but because I had been effective in this other role. So for our audience that doesn't know about your current role, do you mind telling people a little bit about what it is that you do at Autodesk now and, and the type of team that you're on? Sure. Okay. Um, I guess in general, we're a web team. Um, we're called the Autodesk Knowledge Network. And what we're responsible for is um, serving up um, and uh, providing the infrastructure for publishing all of Autodesk help and support content. So essentially, um, what I had been testing in my original QA role was a, a subset of what the team I'm on now is responsible for producing and storing and organizing and uh, optimizing. So I'm familiar a little bit with your background of getting familiarity with uh, the types of infrastructure that backs the, the, the products that you work on at Autodesk now, but for people who aren't familiar with what you might do on a day-to-day -day basis and what kind of tools you use on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, are you still using PHP? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I have to say I'm not. Uh, there is a large Drupal website that's that's uh, part of our content, but uh, I don't work on that directly anymore. So what I realize your your title is senior software engineer, but uh, from what I know of your role, you do a fair amount of DevOps. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say that's fair. Um, I do a lot of, um, I do some DevOps. Uh, I do some solutions design, solutions architecture. Um, I do some big data work with um, recent efforts in um, ETL, and we have some GDPR compliant stuff that we're working on. So. So one of the aspects to your transition from a QA role to an engineering role that I find interesting is uh, by necessity, you had to learn a fair bit about uh, DevOps and Amazon Web Services. Do you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about how you came to the realization that um, utilizing Amazon Web Services and learning how to do certain DevOps job skills uh, was something that you wanted to do or that you ought to do? Sure. I mean, we, well, we started out as a, as a really small team. Um, there were two or three of us at first. Um, there was one really senior architect, uh, one more senior en engineer and myself. And our task was to build out um, sort of a highly available um, content service that uh, included everything from a search engine to a publishing pipeline. Uh, so we we had some pretty complex architectural requirements, uh, obviously because of the scale of the of the content that that we were responsible for, and uh, we we get a lot of of use. We get a lot of views. So when you're talking about a, a team that small, the only possible to accomplish that is to sort of leverage some of the cloud offerings. And AWS is, was the most mature at the time and continues to be to this day. So uh, that's what we used. So eventually, as our applications got more use and got more sophisticated, 
in terms of features, um, we had to leverage more and more parts of AWS's offerings. So um, even as those offerings were being added, so you know, at first we're talking about EC2 instances, uh, you know, virtual machines, and then load balancing components, and then ultimately uh, networking components like uh, virtual private clouds and, and things like that. So, and because we were such a small team, uh, the operations sort of fell to us initially. Um, we had to handle the operations for our application as we were building it out. So yeah, by necessity, we learned. Um, I, I think I'm curious about this topic, but I think our audience would be as well about when it comes to Amazon Web Services and the different types of component services they provide, what what do you get the impression are the easiest to use or perhaps the most valuable to use? Um, maybe not as a first-timer who's trying to utilize Amazon Web Services, but um, for someone in an engineering role, what are what are kind of the easier <laughs> ways to onboard yourself to AWS versus the harder sure. ways? So you mean easier ways in terms of uh, picking some user-friendly offerings that they have, user-friendly services, or or uh, how to how to learn, like how to get onboarded? Um, I guess more of the former than the latter. Okay, um, so. There's some core services that have been around a long time. I think pretty much everyone uh, might have heard about S3, the simple storage service. Um, that's used everything from Netflix to, um, you know, our our content is stored as S3 objects. So it's a virtualized uh, web storage platform that's sort of infinitely scalable. Yeah, no, I... I agree. There, there's a lot of a lot of very basic concepts about it that I think people can intuitively grasp. Uh, one one thing I'll point out is that actually the XLEngineer.com is hosted off of S3, uh, which makes uh, hosting pretty easy because uh, downtime is is a pretty low probability issue as um, when it comes to Amazon's guarantees about. Sure. Uh, whether their service will be up or not, it's easier for them to make uh, highly reliable guarantees about a file hosting service than it is perhaps about a computing service like EC2. Sure. Um, what What are some of the harder What are some of the harder edges that you encountered when you were um, getting leveled up on how to use Amazon Web Services on the job? Sure. Um, well, as a newbie. Um... The permissions model in AWS, because they have so many different offerings, can be tricky to, to figure out. So things might not work, and, and people might be confused about why something isn't working when it works in the examples. Um, and a lot of the times, the answer is to drill down into the the way the, the roles are set up um, in the IAM service. So I think that's probably the first sort of thorny bit that that beginners of AWS will run into, um, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, easier to onboard type of web hosting services I've dealt with that's actually built on top of AWS is Heroku, um, where Heroku has 
none of the IAM controls, the identity access management controls that AWS has. Uh, and in addition, it doesn't have any of the virtual private cloud or VPC um, firewall networking complexity. Um, at which, least that surface to the, uh, to the user. Exactly. That's at least surface to the user. I mean, uh, that has some security drawbacks for sure. Um, if you give access API key wise to your Heroku app, people who have your API key can do quite literally anything. Um, but like you say, having to learn IAM and VPC services as a prerequisite to doing stuff like programmatically uploading files to S3, which you mentioned earlier as an easy service to, to learn, um, is a, imposes a really high cost on first-timers who are coming to try and learn AWS for sure. Would you agree with that? Yeah, um, I, there's certainly a learning curve. Um, I would say it's a pretty steep one. You can, it seems like you can get up and running uh, pretty quickly. And the learning materials that they have available today are are much better than they were several years ago. So, um, you know, if you create a new AWS account right now, there's um, right on your on the console page, there's links to you know bring up a static website or you know host an application or and uh you know what you can do is follow <laughs> those those like basic examples and reverse engineer them and i think you can figure out pretty quickly um how the main components work for sure for sure um you know um one of the, one of the Oh yeah, uh, what I was actually just thinking that that wasn't true four or five years ago when I was learning, that is true now, is that um, there's pretty user-friendly services. I would say that Lambda is probably the most user-friendly of them. If you just want to figure out how to get on there and execute code that can touch other AWS services, that can reach internet resources, interact with other APIs, um, Lambda is a really good starting point. And um, recent UI updates to it have made it pretty user-friendly in my opinion. Is For our audience that doesn't know what Lambda is, do you, sure. mind, do you mind giving like a, a couple sentence uh, abbreviated uh, explanation of what it is? Sure. Um, Lambda is sort of the, the core of the AWS sort of server, serverless offerings. It allows you to execute um, code without having to worry about uh, maintaining or bringing up a server. Um, it sort of executes it in a container for you and you supply predictable inputs and um, and upload your code and you can even edit it right in the, in the console there. So it's a really low overhead way of just getting something running on AWS. And it's pretty well supported by a lot of other AWS offerings so that what you build in Lambda can be connected to pretty much everything else. Another thing probably worth noting about Lambda for our audience is how the pricing for it as a surface works is that in contrast to renting a computer uh, and paying a certain price per hour or what have you, Lambdas are priced uh, per what's called invocation. So uh, in Lambda, the idea is you define a, a function that takes some inputs, like you say, and performs some 
computation, whether that's writing outputs somewhere or uh, returning some types of results, but you pay per invocation. Sure. So uh, I'm not sure of the f- pricing and there. There's but a free tier. If it's you, quite cheap. You know, it's quite affordable. And um, as someone who's just sort of uh, experimenting with things, you're likely to not even reach above the free tier. The, you know, the three tier, free tier threshold. So you're likely to not pay anything if you're just on there using it as a base to experiment. So I know that you are uh, fam- well familiar with and are, are using Docker. Um, is there, what, what's kind of the relationship between uh, Lambdas uh, and, and Docker? And do, are you using both at, at work currently or have plans to? Um, yeah, we do use both. Um, they are sort of different tools for different challenges. We tend to use Lambda for sort of atomic operations. Um, maybe, I mean, obviously the classic use case for them is microservice. If you have just a really, really simple thing that needs to be done and accessible um, at, a, at a web uh, endpoint, um, an API endpoint, then Lambda's you're the way to go. Um, and we tend to use Docker for bringing up more complex applications um, that have a lot more dependencies in local environments. Uh, that's probably what we use it for most. And then a lot of our dev tools um, are more convenient to keep inside Docker containers that we can run on, uh, for example, um, Amazon's Elastic Container Service. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, (laughs) totally different services for, uh, uh, different use cases. (laughs) Um, one of the, one of the topics I'm curious about asking you about as a senior software engineer, DevOpsy type of folk is what, what kind of are you most optimistic about in this field? Um, what, what is it that you're currently trying to self-educate yourself about? Ah, um, educate myself about um well obviously as anyone who works in the industry or or is trying to get into the industry knows it's a constant uh learning is a constant task you have to be doing it constantly to stay up um recently the topics that i've uh, been researching for my own purposes are a lot of the um big data offerings that Amazon has. So um, just based on recent projects that are working on the AWS Glue service, which is one of their uh, newer ones, is sort of uh, democratizing uh, sophisticated ETL tools. So that's um, extract, transform, and load. Um, It's the step where when you have all this data that's disorganized and messy and scattered all over the place, and you need to get it into a format where you can use it for some buzzwordy thing like machine learning. Uh, there's a messy process in between where you need to massage and uh, remove extraneous data. And learning how to do that efficiently is usually harder than doing something with the data at the end. Um, so I've been doing a tremendous amount of research on how to apply those uh, tools to our big data challenges. For our audience that hasn't heard of Glue before, why why use something like Glue as opposed to uh, rolling something yourself? What what is it 
that uh, is persuasive about Amazon's sales pitch when it comes to their glue service offering? Sure. Um, uh-huh. So there's a phenomenal amount of, of work that would be required um, for someone to do this themselves. Uh, so glue handles everything from um, sort of crawling uh your data wherever it may lay in different places and uh, assembling a schema of it that can be used for later transformation. And that's the kind of thing that would take, you know, tens, hundreds of hours of analysis if you're like most people and just have, uh, you know, disparate sets of data sitting around in different places in different formats even. Um, So sure, you could invest time in in writing tools to do that yourself, but um, the challenge is, tend to be um, similar enough that, that Glue has a, created a pretty good way of doing that. So that's, you know, step one is, is just taking the inventory of all your data. Um, and of course, step two is, uh, is transforming it. So what Glue does is it abstracts um, Apache Spark, which is a popular tool um, for this, for big data analysis and, and transformation. Um, and what Glue allows you to do is not have to worry about having the expertise on your team and even the dedicated hardware of running an Apache Spark cluster. Um, and, and especially useful for this sort of big data transformation because there are times where you might want to run a highly parallelized job with tens or hundreds of, of nodes um, that you have no use for after the, your 10-minute job is completed. Um, so having that all managed for you and is is extremely helpful and um there's such a overwhelming amount of aws services that are coming out like i think glue is less than two years old it was announced at the aws summit like a year ago or year or two mm-hmm. ago um so I, I think i think there's a fair amount of our audience that are curious how Amazon is managing to stay ahead of the curve of uh, demand, like you, what you or I do at our full-time job and would pay for versus their competitors, maybe like Google Cloud or Azure or uh, Oracle has been getting pretty deep into this. So I think, I at least I am very curious about um, how Amazon is managing to uh, deliver products that are... Um, managing to alleviate work for you and me and make that are, make sense from a pricing standpoint. So for audience that's curious, at least that's an audience of one for me, is what, what's the pricing look like for something like glue? What, why, why, uh, why use glue versus rolling your own uh, Python script or Ruby scripts that uh, perform the ETL process you've described? Right. And so to be clear, you're still writing up a- a Python script and glue, but they just provide sort of wrappers around Spark that allow you to do things more efficiently to natively contact um, the data store that's stored in glue. Uh, but anyway, so you're still writing code, uh, but it's just you're only writing the bit of code that's actually applying the, the transformation logic or the business logic. Um, and you're not having to worry about the stuff that keeps your cluster running healthily and uh, you know, manages jobs and those kinds of things. Um, so it lets you focus all of your effort on what's actually unique about your application. And that's really powerful. And in terms of pricing, uh, you know, we've been doing some benchmarking and uh, it, it actually sort of varies 
wildly at first until you figure out how to optimize your your specific pipeline. So we're finding that uh, a day's worth of data for us, and, and we get quite a lot of it, is taking on the order of maybe tens of dollars to process. Um, and if you're talking about running a, a huge cluster of servers um, yourself, there's just no way you can reach that level of, of cost efficiency. So is this something that you mentioned a, um, a daily quantity of logs or a daily quantity of data files that you want ETL'd to some target right. um, database so, in some form. Do you, do you, is this something that you run daily and that the daily job costs tens of dollars or less than $100? Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, so essentially you run these jobs on at an interval um, if for no other reason that the end result of this is a data warehouse somewhere that's often connected to, you know, that's often a database and you don't want to be constantly hammering it with, with writes. Um, so yeah, these things are often done uh, in, in batches. And also because a lot of times um, you're looking to, uh, to join different sets of data together into sort of meaningful analysis. Interesting. I, do you mind sharing with our audience kind of the uh, data warehouse uh, databases that uh, one might point their resulting data from a glue task at? I mean, are you guys point loading the data in an in a aggregated form to single node databases like MySQL or Postgres? Or are you guys using some of the bigger data type of databases that um, Amazon offers yeah, a, a little versions of? of. Um, and at, at the risk of sounding like an advertisement for AWS here, we are using um, their Redshift, which is a managed data warehouse service um, that sure. provides a SQL interface to, to connect to. Um, so data warehousing is... Um, it's a solution for the need to store large amounts of of data, often from uh, you know usage or analytics stuff. And when there's a need to for business analysts and other sort of uh, non-technical people, not fully technical people, to connect to it and extract um, more sophisticated insights from from your data. Um, so it needs to support um, secure redundant storage it needs to um, be available it needs to provide a performant query engine yes and and redshift is just a managed uh, data warehousing solution so i apologize to our audience if i if they feel like i've i've dragged us through the weeds of highly specific amazon web services stuff <laughs> dialing back for a second uh, one of the questions i wanted to ask you about in your career arc so far is whether you have any very general advice to share with our audience about career decisions and uh, when it comes to what's worth learning and um, what jobs to pursue, perhaps. Uh, do you have any general advice for your audience on those topics? Um, sure. I mean, I guess the most important thing is just to not be intimidated um, because the the field is so vast and you're just never going to be able to know anything, even at your most senior. Um, so you should never be ashamed of not knowing something or intimidated that something is hard because even if it is hard, you know, it doesn't mean you can't figure it out. So. For sure. One of the things that we harp on 
quite often in our podcast is the value of having a job is you get these teammates who have a vested interest in you uh, succeeding. And one of the questions I have for you is about the topic of um, peers and people that might have been great educators to you, whether that's in a formal education setting like professors or on the job. Uh, any anyone you want to give a give a shout out yeah, to <laughs> sure. and uh, and express of course. To? I mean, I was lucky enough early on to have sort of a, a good cop bad cop situation going on. Um, I learned a whole lot about everything from uh, my current coworker uh, Shamik, uh, real good guy, um, who was sort of leading the way in terms of uh, implementing this application when I came on. So I learned about a lot about the AWS architecture from him and, and such. And then uh, Tommy Lee, the the bad cop who basically when I would come to him with a problem would give me a, like the tiniest of hints and then say, okay, go figure it out. You know, with a, <laughs> you know, with a, a smile on his face, knowing that I'd struggle with it. But uh, yeah, I have to, to give those two guys a lot of credit. For sure, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think people might be fearful of the bad cop style of uh, mentoring, but one of the aspects to it that I gotta acknowledge as being a positive is a large part of our struggle to succeed as software engineers is spent toiling on becoming familiar with things you're not familiar with to start with. I, I think you might agree, but a, a huge portion of our job is reading. Sure and getting familiar with topics that we're not familiar with. But part of the bad cop style of mentoring is to reinforce that you can't always turn around and, and interrupt somebody else's uh, job <laughs> and, and presence of mind with your questions, your somewhat selfish questions uh, that you may be able to answer yourself if you give yourself another five, 10 minutes, 30 minutes of patiently uh, researching. Yeah. So. I, wanna, I, wanna, I agree with that. I um, and I, I also mm -hmm. would state that the, the first barrier is one that like is often helpful to, to look over someone's shoulder for, you know, hello worlding yourself with a new language or a, a new technology, just getting that basic level of orienting yourself. Um, I think it's fair to, to seek help for that. Um, but, but certainly you're right that um, struggling with your first few real challenges in anything new is like super important um, to figuring out how to how to learn that skill. For sure, for sure. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome having you on as a guest. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Adam and want to hear more about the professional software engineering careers we discussed, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.